Welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild spaces of the Lower Columbia Pacific region. I'm Teresa Retzloff, and with me today is Mike Patterson, who is a counter of things. Yes. <laughs> this is how you describe yourself. Yeah. Um, what kind of things do you count, Mike? Well, um, <laughs> depends on whether um, I have an actual paying job or not. Uh -huh. um, when I'm I, when I'm just doing things for my own personal interest, um, uh, this time of year I'll be counting uh, migrant shorebirds moving along the beach, um, migrant uh, neotropical migrants that are moving along through the um, canopy of the forest here, um, all on their way to their breeding grounds. Um, later in the summer I will shift to counting butterflies and bees. Um, actually um, count butterflies for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and I was, uh, and I've been volunteering with the Oregon Bee Atlas. Um, Such uh, a cool project. Counting, <laughs> counting stuff for the bee stuff. And then there's the bee thing, and then there's the bumblebee thing, and uh, you know, there's all of that kind of stuff. Um, I keep track of dragonflies for the um, Odonata Network, which is a butterfly group. And, uh, but mostly I just do these things to keep myself busy and off the street and out of the house. Um, and every once in a while, somebody will call me up and say, we'd, we'd like you to actually do it on purpose for us. So uh, ca counting things is, is just you're tracking populations. You're trying to understand, you know, what birds, insects, critters are moving through spaces at a different time. Yeah, there, there's, 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 there's a couple of different things about counting stuff. Uh, one of them is to get a sense of um, population densities, population changes over time, um, which, is, um, which is a thing now because of global climate change, um, you know, actually tracking to see if uh, population, if we can actually quantify um, population changes. Um, on the uh, ecological scale, it's also interesting and useful to know what kinds of birds and at what densities they are in specific habitat types. Um, I mean, just, you know, we're here at Circle Creek right now, and um, if you were to look out through the barn door, um, you'd see spruce trees over here, and you'd see a big sort of open um, shrubby area over here. Well, we would expect different things in the shrubby area than we do in the, um, in the tree in the spruce area and and then there's this whole idea of interfaces between those two there are certain birds that are attracted to the interface as opposed to all one habitat or another and just keeping track of all of those things and is a measure of the health of the system that you're looking out the window at i it's Wonderful that you mentioned that we're here at Circle Creek. Uh, this is Circle Creek Conservation Center. For people who don't know, it's a property owned by North Coast Land Conservancy. It's just south of Seaside. And there is incredible diversity here. Yeah. And it's, I, I, if people are hearing noises in the background, there's, there's barn swallows where we're sitting. I hear geese overhead. There's lots of birds twittering in the trees outside. It's very exciting. And it is a, a really amazing space and very inspiring to come to. Thinking about, you know, I know this is something that I learned from North Coast Land Conservancy, the idea of, of 
like corridors for wildlife also include where people live. You know, that, that where we live in our homes and our gardens is not separate from nature. You know, you might come here to a place like this and go, oh, this is nature, and then I go home and that's my garden. But the birds are also moving through people's gardens too and the insects and things like that as well. So you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is how do people make their gardens more welcoming to wildlife, whether that's birds or beneficial insects or, or things like that. I mean, there's things that we, you know, plants we could plant, things we could do, maybe things we shouldn't do. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, one of the things that um, we all have to learn how to do whether we're planting a garden or not, is to rein in our control issues. <laughs> um, it's it's um, the, the, the story that I always like to tell is, you know, when people first came here, it didn't look anything like this at all. And so the, the settlers came here, they looked at this place, they said, this is a beautiful place, this is a perfect place, this is an Eden. And then they proceed to cut down the trees and plow the ground and all of these other things to make it look like the place they came from. And as soon as we start doing that, we are fundamentally going from the native ecology of the place to a human ecology. And so everything that we do, whether we know it or not, is based on a human aesthetic, which goes back to the, a human ecology. What do humans have to do to make the space livable for them and of course there's a big disagreement between different humans about what's you know um, are all the trees in the forest a fungible commodity that we cut down and 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 make a profit off of um, is a wetland a waste of space that we need to fill in so that we can put more things on top of it all of those things are human aesthetic issues that um, we grapple with um, and so at the smallest level at the, the at the my backyard level, um, there's still a certain amount of control issue. I mow my lawn, that's a control issue. I pull out all of the false dandelion, that's a control issue. Um, I am more comfortable with having a raccoon in my backyard than I am a rat in my backyard, even though both the rat and the raccoon have been invited there by the way I'm managing my garden. And that's the other thing that we need to sort of get our head around is that idea of when you make these changes, those changes aren't just the kind of changes that humans appreciate, they're the kind of changes that other organisms appreciate. Um, and so if, if you have an apple tree in your backyard, you're gonna get deer in your backyard unless you want to get really creative with a fence or a slingshot or whatever, <laughs> um, you're going to have, you know, if you plant blueberries, you're going to get robins and starlings and all of these other things because you're inviting those organisms into your space by changing the ecology to the things that you like are the things that they like. That I think is so challenging for so yeah. many people because oftentimes the, the, the food crops that we want to grow to eat are also really palatable to birds or deer or elk or, or whoever. Yeah. And we get, people get so mad. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the animals are just doing what they do. You're yeah. putting out a tasty buffet for them. They're going to come eat it. Yeah. And so trying to figure out how to have that balance, I think I hear that frustration a lot from gardeners. 
and people get very mad at wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, wildlife's doing what it's doing. Yeah. I so mean, so there's, there's got to be ways to strike a balance. I mean, I'm struggling with this. Honestly, I, w I am struggling with this on, the, on my farm right now. I, I sell a lot of, uh, of lettuce plant oh, starts. Oh, lettuce is tasty. There's lots I of things that'll eat I know. Yeah. And I sow flats and flats of lettuce in my propagation greenhouse. And I get little mice that come in and dig up all the seeds and eat them. And then if, if I'm lucky enough to not have the mice eat them, the little, um, is it white crowned sparrows? Yeah. Oh, man, those birds will just fly in there and dig up all the seeds and eat them. And I'm so frustrated. They're, I love the birds, the mice. I wish they would just leave it alone. I yeah. put out traps for them because, you know, it's, that's the deal. But, but I also understand it's like I'm putting out a tasty buffet for them. Yeah. I have to figure out, I'm working with bird netting, I'm working with other systems, because if I want them to not do that, I've got to take responsibility for providing the barrier. Yeah. Even though they've got so much habitat around, they don't need to eat my lettuce, but yeah. they're going to. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the other thing that, from an ecological point of view, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to use blueberries as an example. Yeah. The reason why the blueberry plant goes through all the trouble of putting energy into making those blueberries is so that a bird will eat them, fly somewhere else, and poop out the seeds. It is a contract between the bluebird, or between the blueberry and the bird. Uh -huh. We're breaking that contract, sort of, yeah. in that- um, We're not spreading the seeds we're around. We're not spreading those <laughs> seeds around. We're cooking the blueberries nine times out of 10. And when we don't, one way or another, they're going into a place where they're not going to grow up as new blueberries. Mm -hmm. All right. So from the blueberries perspective, we're kind of doing a disservice. Now, because we're agriculturalists, we plant blueberries where we want blueberries, depending on how our, our control issue is. Mm -hmm. We want the blueberry to be right there. We're in a symbiotic relationship with that blueberry too. Mm -hmm. All right. We're providing an ecological space. We're we're removing all the competition from around it so that it can grow well. We're giving it water. We're giving it food. We're doing all of those things. So we're providing a service for the blueberry also. I mean, and these are called symbiotic relationships. Um, we're, in fact, your whole garden is mm -hmm. a symbiotic relationship between you and the plants. You're, you're making a deal with the plant. You're going to let the plant reproduce and grow, and then you're going to eat the plant eventually, presumably. and Or just enjoy the flowers. Or just enjoy the flowers or whatever. And um, so there's that symbiotic relationship between you and the plant too. There's an ecological relationship there that because we're people and we deny that we're part of the system, yeah. we miss. But it's there. Um, the, we're in an ecological relationship with our garden. Yeah. And we're making decisions. We're, we're actually the keystone species in that garden because we're making the decisions. If we stop making those decisions, the garden changes. We have an impact on the ecology of that, which makes us a keystone species in that garden. They, Explain what a keystone species is. For a keystone species is an organism that by its absence, changes the ecology of the system. And there's been a lot of really cool work that's been done with kangaroo mice in Eastern Oregon, yeah. where you take these plots and you put the kangaroo um, mice in them, and then you make these exclusion plots where there's no uh, kangaroo mice. And what happens in the case of the kangaroo mouse is that the, because it's, it's been in the syst ecological system for so long, it 
impacts the, the, the rest of the system has evolved in a way to, to, to live with the kangaroo mouse and the diversity of the system actually goes up. And when you remove that keystone species, then all of these grasses which tend to take over, take over the place and the diversity of the system goes down. Same thing happened in um, Yellowstone Park with elk. When they removed the um, wolves, uh -huh. the elk would come down into the eat places where it was easy to eat, and they were not just eating the grass, they were eating all of the riparian zone willows, um, and they were eating the new aspen mm -hmm. before they could grow up. They introduced wolves, the wolves ran the elk out so that the elk had to pay attention for a change, and the riparian systems recovered, the aspen recovered, there was this ecological change and the diversity went up because we added wolves to the system. Or we just allowed them to return. Well, in the case of, in, in the case of Yellowstone, <laughs> or were they, they not there before? They, 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 they augmented the population, yes. And they've been augmenting the population in a few other places as well. The places where they don't, they're having trouble convincing people to augment the population mm -hmm. are places like Oregon. Mount yeah. St. Helens in, on the Washington side could use some wolves and the official policy in Washington is, the wolves will show up, and when they show up, we'll just let them stay. <laughs> but this is also part of our, as humans, wanting to control the environment. Exactly. And, and in a sense, it's like, sure, we want wildlife to be in our gardens, in our spaces, in our, in our regions, but only if they behave in the way that we want them to behave. Right. And, and so it's, it's having to accept that you're not in control. Yeah. Which, which comes back to that whole, you know, we want to be in control. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, and so maybe part of it is like, if you want to allow wildlife into your gardens, you have to let go of some control. Ex that's exactly what you have to do. And, and there are ways to improve the, the garden, um, little things. Um, uh, you know, people complain, they put out a bird feeder mm -hmm. because they want a particular kind of bird to come there. And then they're upset because the squirrels and the rats have found the bird feeder as well and they don't want squirrels and rats because it's a bird feeder. And <laughs> squirrels and the rats are supposed to know that. And the deer that come in and eat the food out of the bird feeder. Yep. Um, and the um, sharp-shinned hawk, which comes to eat the siskins that are coming to the feeder. You know, they don't want the sharp-shinned hawk. Well, it's a bird feeder. Sharp-shinned hawks are birds. They're feeding. Get over <laughs> it. They're just feeding on the birds that you're trying to yeah. feed. And so, you know, that's... Uh, do, you, do you think that's also something that we're, we're uncomfortable seeing things killed in nature? You know, like you, you want to see the little birds and they're so sweet and whatever, but little birds are are food source for larger birds yes. and we're uncomfortable with seeing that happen in front of us. We're uncomfortable seeing that in front of us and we're, we feel guilty because we made the birds come to our feeder and get eaten. Um, and I had to stop feeding at my bird feeder for a while because we had problems with cats in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and before, I will make the disclaimer, I love cats. We have three cats at our house. Mm -hmm. They never go outside. Yeah. But they do have a window that they can sit in right next to the bird feeder <laughs> so that they can watch the birds and go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but they don't need to catch any birds yeah. um, because they're very well fed. Um, and, and so it's, it's not that I hate cats. It's... it's it's not the cat's fault. It's the person who owns the cat's fault. Yeah. And um, and you know we just need to take responsibility of our animals if we're going to have them. Yeah. Know? Cats are devastating for bird populations. They're bad for bird populations. They're bad for small mammal populations. Um, and 
And it's just, it's not safe for the cats either because cats are delicious if you're a coyote. Yes, that's or true. You're an, or an eagle and, um, or a great horned owl. Um, the raccoons don't like interacting with cats and they'll scrap with them and your cat will come home with pieces missing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not really safe to have your cat wandering around outside. Um, but we can't remove, I mean, this is what's an, an interesting, another one of those balance things. It's like, we want to have our cats. We want, mm -hmm. you know, people want to let them go yeah. wherever they want to go, but they want the wildlife to leave them alone. Yeah. And you can't, you can't reason with wildlife. Wildlife is, is what it is. Yeah. And I, I learned this lesson in a very painful way last year when some ravens, um, started to show up on our property mm -hmm. and um, partly they were there because um, a, a friend was raising some pigs on the property and bringing a lot of compost to feed the pigs and the ravens would show up and eat the compost and then when the pigs went away well, the critters moved, in the compost well yeah, <laughs> yes but they well they liked the tomatoes they yeah, liked oh, yeah, they yeah. liked they liked some of the okay, the, so the it produce was, it wasn't debris compost yet. no no it was no pre -compost. it was pre-compost yeah. so uh and when the, the pigs moved on yeah. to their next next um phase yeah uh, the ravens were like, well, what happened to our food source, you yeah. know? And they, so they started to eat all my bean plants yeah. mm -hmm. and they were very angry. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I tried to kind of argue with them for a while and finally just learned like we, you know, we have to have to appease them somehow. It's actually been a, a kind of a perfect solution in that now they get fed the rats that we catch in our chicken coop oh. that are there to catch, that are there eating the, you know, very nice organic grain that we're feeding our chickens. Yeah. So my husband, Packy, uh, puts out rat traps and catches lots of rats and then has a certain spot that he goes to deposit them and the ravens know and they come and mm -hmm. they find, and I feel like we've kind of worked out, mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've, we've worked out an agreement now and they know to come and look for rats there. And so far they haven't been bothering my plants. Yeah. So that's good. Well, There's ways that you could do it. I mean, it does involve killing rats. Well, and, and that's, that's a solution <laughs> that, that, um, that most recently in Africa, they were having trouble with the baboons coming and eating the melons in their melon patch. Mm -hmm. And they had built these fences and the, and the baboons would go right over the... So what they did was they left the fence and then they planted food that the baboons actually prefer to eat rather than melons on the other side of the fence. Mm -hmm. So now they're growing their melons, but they're also keeping this crop for the baboons so that the baboons don't Eat their melons. Eat their melons. That's and, a and that's great the, solution. That's the same solution that you came up with, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, they're starting to figure it out here with, in Clatsop County with the, with, the, um, with the elk, is rather than putting your green space in the middle of all the houses, which is the way they did it back in the 70s, because mm -hmm. they had to leave a certain amount of green space, uh, it was just a regulation. And so they have the green space in the middle and the houses all the way around, and then the elk would come through people's yards to get to the green space in the middle. Well, now they're putting the green space on the outside. On the outside, and they're making these great big long corridors mm -hmm. that the elk can move back and forth in. And so the elk are less inclined to hang out in your yard. It doesn't get rid of them, but mm -hmm. it, it makes them less. In and so it's those kind of things where you have to say, we can't stop the elk. Mm -hmm. So how can we mitigate this? change in the environment that we're making when we build a house or put in a garden or whatever. I mean, I have a, I have a, a fence um, in my garden, um, which we haven't actually planted anything in yet. It's still got yes, last year's strawberries and stuff <laughs> in it, but it, we haven't planted anything in it yet. We're still trying to decide because our garden is so small and pitiful that 
we're not, <laughs> we never get enough of anything. <laughs> you get more than, than one or two beans at a time. And, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, we built a fence around it because the elk were, or the deer were just coming straight in. Yeah. So we built it on three sides. And then we have a big rosemary bush on the backside. Yeah. And between the rosemary bush and the fence, we don't have any deer inside. Inside the fence. They'll inside. be all around it. They'll be not... all around it, and, yeah, and, and they're still going back and eating mm -hmm. the apples in the fall, which is fine because it makes the tree makes more apples than, than we can turn into applesauce. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, that to me seems like the best compromise is like if there are things that you want to grow that you know the deer are going to want to eat, you know, keep like build a fenced area and grow those things inside a fenced yeah. area. Um, and, and maybe make some space. Like, there's lots of plants that deer don't like to eat. Yeah. I'm just like, there's lots of plants the, that the birds... The rosemary is yeah, one of them. Rosemary's, the aromatic herbs, I found a lot of them. Rosemary, yeah. sage, thyme, lavender. They tend to leave those things alone. They don't like really strong yeah. tasting foliage. But there's definitely plants that I have thought deer don't like this. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is one or two to taste it yeah. and discover it's not actually poisonous. And then now they come and eat it every year. So there's yeah. things I've had to move around. Yeah. Um, depending on what the well, plant we grow, is. We grow nasturtiums down in the corner, mm -hmm. and um, we don't have to tend them. because. And the your deer, deer don't eat them? The deer love nasturtiums. Oh, they do. <laughs> yes, that's what that, that's so what you're that feeding... patch of nasturtiums is for. <laughs> it's your and, deer, your deer patch. And the, and the rosemary has this gorgeous blue flower mm -hmm. that the bees love. Yeah. And so if you're growing bees, yeah. or you want to encourage bees in your garden, yeah. Uh, one of the things is they have a rosemary bush there. Rosemaries bloom pretty much all year long. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, the, uh, you know, we have bees there all along. And the neighbor across the streets decided he's going to be a beekeeper now. And his bees come over to our rosemary and then go back. Yeah. That seems like a great relationship. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it, you, can, you can work things out if you're, willing to set aside some of your control issues um, and and that's and that's what we're going to have to do anyway if we want to move forward into the future we're going to have to start making some choices which are which require us to change our behaviors because we're running out of places that we can take over and still have clean water and um, green spaces and all of these other things so it's, 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 we're, we're kind of at a point where we need to take that garden mindset and, and, um, and, and, and apply it everywhere and just sort of let go of some of our control issues, try to reintroduce uh, as many things as we can. You know, so if in, in your garden, one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons why we uh, um, sort of decided we were going to have a second chat was because we were talking about salamander boards. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, I put salamander boards up uh, in, in places I've got, I, I think, 20-some, 30-some mm -hmm. uh, salamander boards throughout the property here. And explain what a salamander board is. Well, it's a, a, a salamander board. It's very low-tech. I love the they're, 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 they're actually uh, habitat boards is, is what, what they'll be mm -hmm. in the literature. And it's basically just a piece of board. And, like uh, plywood. A piece of plywood. In this case, it's I have. Uh, they're all two by four mm -hmm. because you can get buy a piece of plywood, cut it into four, and you've mm -hmm. got four of these boards. Um, and um, I usually put paint on one side of them just to make them a little more water resistant, um, and the paint side goes up. 
Um, and then you just you, you put them out in places, and then you see what's underneath them. You, you know, you get you let them sort of sit for a while, and then you see what's underneath them. I've had this happen accidentally on our farm with both pieces of plywood and um, pieces of like corrugated metal, yeah. like an old roof from a mm -hmm. shed that was taken down. Snakes, total snake house underneath yeah. there. We get a lot of snakes, um, little voles. Yeah. Love to be under there, which I'm assuming is why the snakes are there too. I haven't seen salamanders under there. I do see them in different, or well, newts. The, I think the, 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 what's the thing with the orange belly? The, those, are, those are newts. Okay, the newts, so I get newts. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and if you look carefully, you'll notice that you also get snails and you get mm -hmm. slugs and you get, uh, there's a little ground beetle that turns up under there mm -hmm. and a really cool centipede that's uh, bright red, orangey red. Um, there's all sorts of things that will use those salamander. And so is it just the, the, the darkness or the, it's, the it's, protected habitat? What, would that be like mimicking a fallen tree? Well, it, that's, that's exactly, it, it, in most of these spaces here, um, again, we go back to our control issues. Um, when you cut down a forest, mm -hmm. to, you extract as much of the timber as possible because that's all money. Yeah. We, don't see it as, as, we don't see it as what it really is, which is carbon. Yeah, <laughs> we're extracting all and of that. Habitat. <laughs> we're extracting all of that carbon, yeah. and we're using, we're putting carbon into the air in the process of extracting all of that carbon, and then we're shipping that carbon somewhere else. So we're taking the carbon that that, that is out in the forest. That's out in the forest, mm -hmm. doing ecological things, and we're moving it, and so we're decreasing the carbon load. And it, but but when they go back to replant, they make sure they clean everything up. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting... No, 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 I'm just saying, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like off screen, I'm, I'm making a gesture at Mike saying, we've got about five more minutes. <laughs> oh, oh, that was, sometimes I get excited and I talk too no, loud. You were I, great. <laughs> no, you were totally great. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Just uh, interject a little behind the scenes of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, but, but so, so the... We're the, replacing the woody debris by putting these boards out. Okay, so that's... And at the same time, mm -hmm. we can quantify, based on the size of the board... Yeah. We can get organisms per unit area at the oh, same okay. time. Oh, okay. So it goes back to counting things. So it goes back to counting things exactly. <laughs> and, and what we find here is that most of the most of the boards are becoming um, mouse and vole habitat. Uh -huh. uh, we find a lot of um, the native uh, paramiscus mouse, white-footed deer mouse, um, and then voles. There's several species of voles that are out here, um, and um, that's what uses these boards the most. That's why we kind of have to call them habitat boards. But if you go into some of the damper areas, we start seeing northwestern salamanders and uh, western redback salamanders and um, dun salamander, um, and then the, the big uh, giant salamander there, <laughs> which gets to be about, uh, I'm not making this up, they, they get to be a little over a foot That's size. That's so cool. They're huge. Um, so do you, is it just that like where, like, well, where you put the board, if you put it in a wet area, you're going to get things that like to live in a wet area. And if it's in a drier area or if it's in a forest, it's going to like the things that would live in that area anyway are going to be the things yeah, under the board. And so what the ones that I put up in the higher drier areas, I expect more mammals and probably there's a native lizard called the uh, northern alligator lizard. Oh, I love those. We yeah, have some and those. they like to be under the boards and then snakes. There's mm -hmm. two species of snakes here. And if you can get over your whatever, some people have issues with snakes. Yeah. Um, but this the snake is, is, is actually a top predator in your garden. Absolutely, and I, I like to have those things around. Yeah. And once I realized how many snakes were living under these pieces mm -hmm. of corrugated metal lying around, yeah. I started intentionally laying them around yeah. 
because I want them to come in and eat my slugs and eat, eat whatever else they're going to eat. Yeah. And so, I mean, snakes, I, I will absolutely raise my hand to be one of those people like, I don't like to pick them up. They kind of yeah. give me the willies because they move so fast, but I love them in the on my farm. I think yeah. they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I know so many of these other things are also wonderful to, to try and increase the biodiversity on your in your garden, on your farm, wherever you are. I mean, I would rather have the, the insects fighting it out yeah. than me having to intervene and try and mm -hmm. use a, a pesticide to try and deal with an insect that's gotten out of control. Can I bring it? Can, can I encourage a predator to yeah. move in that's going to take care of that for me? Well, and, and no matter what the pesticide people tell you, pesticides are nonspecific. Yep. And um, they tend to hit the top of the food chain harder than they hit the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Bottom of the, re the food chain reproduces much more rapidly and learn and, and develops a resistance, whereas the dragonflies and the, you know, the, the predators at the top end of the, of the insect food chain, yeah. praying mantises, whatever, yeah. um, bees really get hit hard. Yeah. By this, especially the um, nicotine-based uh, pesticides yeah. are really bad for bees. Yeah. It doesn't kill them, which is how the pesticide people get away with it. They'll say, oh, it doesn't kill them. It just makes them stupid so they can't survive. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, these are all these are all complex things. But yeah. I think it comes back to the thing that you said earlier, which is we need to let go of some control. Yeah. And maybe letting go of control is not using pesticides in your garden, maybe not using herbicides, finding other ways to control things yeah. or let go of some control. Let go of some control. Yeah. And you know, share. And share. Sharing. <laughs> sharing is the other part of that is is. Share. Yeah. We, what, wait, what's the statistic yeah. we throw out? 40% of the food that yeah. we grow? Share some with wildlife. Share some with the wildlife. That yeah. sounds perfect. Mike, we are basically out of time. And this has been a fact. I could feel like I could talk to you for a couple more hours about this. It's, it's wonderful and, and very thought-provoking. Thank you for giving me a lot to think well, about today. I always, I always enjoy having yeah. chats with you. Oh. It's always fun. Um, if, you, uh, if you've been listening to this, uh, I have been speaking with Mike Patterson. He uh, lives in Astoria and is a counter of things. Many of them wildlife things, but also other things too. Anyway, Mike, thank you so much. This has been great and well, very informative. Thank you for inviting me on this nice day. <laughs> Thanks.